You're listening to a Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the uh, podcast. I'm Dan Savage. This is the once a week out loud version of my sex advice column, Savage Love. We call this the Savage Love Cast because we have no imagination. And uh, we're happy you're here and we're happy you're downloading. 206-201-2720 is the number if you want to record a question for a future podcast. And you download this smutty tripe every week at thestranger.com slash savage. So joining us today uh, is Science, Jonathan Golub, who writes the column Dear Science uh, twice a week, or twice a month in The Stranger, and has his own science podcast here on uh, thestranger.com. Um, so you are, we just call you Science around here. What are your goddamn qualifications for assuming that mantle? So so I'm uh, an MD and PhD student at the University of Washington. I'm kind of getting to the end of my PhD, so I'll be a doctor twice over before I... Twice over? You're already a doctor? Well, not, not quite yet, but in about a year I'll, I'll hopefully get my PhD, and then I'll have my MD two years after that. Wow. And then I've been working in labs for about 10 years or so, starting back in Baltimore and then now here in Seattle. But you don't have a little string of letters after your name yet. You're on your way there. No, no. But you do have that most cherished and valuable scientific thing on your CV, which is columnist for the stranger. Yeah, exactly. I suspect this is going to be the key to my future success. And maybe the pinnacle. This may be the top. This yeah. may be as far this, as you go. This may be the highlight of my academic career. Jonathan's here because he wrote a column about sex. We thought it'd be fun to have him on the show to talk about sex. And I'm going to ask the first question because it comes up all the time. Women fake orgasms. Uh, I have a problem with this, as I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're a fag too, right? No. No, you're straight. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Just looking at you, I thought you were a fag. And all the, Jonathan bakes, so every time he drops by the offices, it's homemade bagels and cookies and challah. And that's just so gay <laughs> that all this time I assumed you were, like, taking it in the ass, making bagels and running to work. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm just open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> but not open-orified. No. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I get questions all the time. From straight women who've uh, painted themselves into a corner, orgasmically speaking, because they've been faking orgasms, and it's led their partners to believe that uh, whatever they're doing works. And you know, people start doing that at the outset because they don't expect a relationship to last. And then five years later, they're stuck with a guy, and they don't want to go to him and say, "All those times, you know, that the five years of sexual performance, you thought you were just fucking nailing it for me. You suck. I didn't come once." Then these women are looking at faking orgasms for the rest of their lives. Now, this whole process could be short circuit. If guys knew how to spot a faked orgasm and they went, eh, most guys wouldn't give a shit, I, I fear, most straight guys. They're happy with a fake, they're happy with a real, as long as they're having their orgasm. But the sensitive guys could say, you're faking, if they could only tell a so, fake from a real. So, so, how do you tell? I'm not going to let you get a word in edgewise, because it's, <laughs> we're recording this very early in the morning and I feel really aggrieved. Um, so how the fuck, if you're a straight guy, and you're a straight guy, I just learned this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> If you're a straight guy, how can you tell when your lady friend is faking? And I'm going to lean back in my chair and we'll let you talk. Uh, sweaty feet are, are a good bet. Any, anything that's sort of sympathetic nervous system is, is going to be a good way to tell. Sweaty What's feet? a sympathetic nervous system? All right, all right. So you got, you got your kind of like subconscious part of your automatic part of your brain that kind of regulates like how fast your heart beats, how much you breathe, like all this sort of stuff. And it's got two halves. You got your parasympathetic feeding, breeding, sort of relaxing on the couch half. And then you have your sympathetic fight or flight, you know, like you're being chased by a lion half. And they're totally, both are involved in sex. So arousal is all about the parasympathetic nervous system. So getting relaxed, getting getting all aroused, getting everything wet. And, because and there's all sorts go. of different things that happen to you. You're aroused and your nose starts to run, literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, you get more saliva in your mouth. Your nipples get hard. Your, your genitals go, you know, dicks get hard. Ladies' genital, genitals open like beautiful Georgia O'Keeffe paintings, or so I've been <laughs> <Expand>. told. <laughs> uh, 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 
and, and so all these different things are related. So and you're saying feet too. So, so parasympathetic is that's all parasympathetic stuff. But at the, in, but at the final moment, at the, the moment of glory, it's the sympathetic nervous system comes rushing in for the charge, and that's like fight or flight. So you got to get ready to run. So like cold sweat, your pupils get bigger. Your your at the moment of orgasm. At the moment of orgasm, and it's like this little spike. You get goosebumps. You know, so so not everyone gets everything, but anything kind of along this line, anything like you've been in the scary movie, you're going over the top of a roller coaster. Well, how do you spot these things without like fucking in a surgery and filming <laughs> the is, whole goddamn thing from is, every possible is, angle so you can go, hey, your trick. feet weren't so, sweaty. Grab the palms. Grab the soles. Grab, grab, no, no, no. I mean, grab, grab the hands. Same, same hand, same deal, right? Uh-huh. So like sweaty palms. Uh, but one of the easy things that's maybe a little bit subtler, subtler to look for is the pupils get a little bit bigger just for just for an instant, like, and so a little so bit. You of have to so, prop their eyes open. Yeah, like, so, what's so, his face so, and so, clockwork so, orange. And yeah, strap it, their head down. Exactly, so you can see. exactly. And this is like to so just be absolutely sure. I mean, so so I mean, you're kind of getting the sense of this. Like, this is actually a somewhat serious problem in science, right? Like Viagra has been super successful. The drug company is now ready to you know flaccid dick totally taken care of now we're ready for something new right and and so you have all this really weird tests like clitoral mri and like because um, they're now developing a class of drugs for women they want to they really want to they really want to have it i know women who take viagra because it works on the same tissues yeah so so i mean there's a lot of people don't think women have erectile tissues and they do what shoves the vagina out and makes it look like a beautiful georgia o'keefe painting that just (laughs) fell from a hot you know or canned ham dropped from very great height what does that that's all erectile the, tissue. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the clitoris is, is, is the exact same tissue, basically, as the penis. The head of the penis. The head of the penis. Well, but the clitoral tissue goes far back around. The wings. The wings. That's what they call them and in so, ladies' home ac. And so that's what they're looking for with, like, the MRI and all this stuff. And so Viagra, to an extent, works, but it doesn't – it doesn't. so you can get the tissue erect, but it doesn't necessarily Help cause orgasm. orgasm. And so they're trying to figure that out, and it's, it's, it's next to impossible to come up with some – like machinery that you can tell if you have an orgasm. So the the gold standard, the very best way to find out if a woman has an orgasm, the pinnacle of science is asking. So, <laughs> right? But they lie. <laughs> well, I is, get letters every this day. Is, Women this, lie. This is the troll. So apparently, you need bubble sheets and a white coat, and then you're like, <laughs> and then they tell the truth. They tell the truth. Like it's 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 good enough at that point. So like if you if if you kind of take it out, and of the, the trick context, is not to let scientists interview women they've slept with themselves. <laughs> exactly. Which Strangely enough, does not come up that often. Because so, like, <laughs> scientists never have sex. No, never, ever. But I don't believe you. This is why Bush keeps winning elections, right? No, no, that's right. You people don't breathe. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. the slack-jawed yokels out in Utah with their 44 wives who are out breeding. You guys need to, like, polygamy for scientists, I think, is what we need. Okay, so what you're telling me is that you should look for, if you're a dude and you want to know if her orgasms are real, pupils dilating briefly, sweaty palms, sweaty feet... And and just sort of anything like you'd think. And like, the minute you're done, you should leave the room, and someone in a lab coat with a bubble sheet should come in and ask. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, but you know, my attitude is like you should just. I mean, you should ask in a way that's not judgmental because it's the only way you're going to solve whatever. Like, if it's not working, talking's going to go. And like, I don't know. There's definitely like the sort of attitude that's sort of like a video game. Like you're gonna you're gonna try to do it, and I think I think if you just sort of relax and kind of ask just ask but sweaty palms and pupils are probably the next the next best thing sounds like you need a couple of friends yeah you should go down on her and you should have two friends who are each holding their feet and hands (laughs) not holding her down just like gently holding like to make her feel more secure and safe and then checking for perspiration at the end exactly exactly all right let's get to some of your calls here on the uh love cast okay one dan Use pussy as much as you like. Question is, how much do you know about pheromones and how much do they actually affect 
relationships and who you're attracted to. Curious about that because I seem to only be attracted to guys from a certain region of Europe and it's driving me nuts. Uh, thanks for your call. I do use pussy just as much as I like now, which is hardly much at all. Um, so, Jonathan, pheromones. You hear about pheromones all the time now. When did they find pheromones? Because, oh. I, I mean, I remember like when I was a kid in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, reading books about sex and sexual attraction, and I never heard of pheromones. And then suddenly in mid-90s, it's like, all anybody talks about. Pheromones made me do it. They're the new devil. Where'd they come from? Well, I mean, they, they've been around for animals for forever and ever, ever. I mean, going back to worms, like the simplest, most basic organisms. Um, I mean, where did, when, did, when were they discovered? When did we start talking about them? When did science start rubbing our noses in them? You mean for, for humans? For, yeah. For people? Oh, I mean... Maybe when MRI started getting really widely available, so, so maybe in the 90s. Because then you could measure the effect of pheromones on an individual? You could, you could even just find that human brains have the same stuff, have the same, some of the same machinery. But, you know, it's kind of gone out passe, at least in the scientific field. So you start doing genetic studies. Sometime during primate evolution, one of the key genes in this got mutated and doesn't work anymore. So, like, bits and pieces of the pheromone processing system exist. And work for us. And work for us. But it seems like the whole, like, from start to finish is broken. So, like, we're like a rat or like a rodent is, like, all wired and pheromones are a huge, huge part of the olfactory system, like smelling and all that stuff. Humans, it's still, it's not really convincing that they exist. I mean, and, and, and they, they keep Or they exist. It. It's not, we're not convinced that they have the same effect on us, so that we're powerless exactly. in the face of them. So the idea is, like, you have some parts of it that remain, and maybe they're doing other things now. But the idea that... Are some people more susceptible than others? Possibly. I mean, if you, they've done studies and show there's some variability. So some people have more of the parts than others. Um, but in truth, no one's really actually shown, to my knowledge, that pheromones actually do anything in people. And that they could compel us no, to yeah. engage in behaviors or be attracted to people that no. we wouldn't otherwise be. No. So this guy's saying that... Is it the pheromones that I'm only into dudes from a certain Eastern European country? I hope it's not Latvia. I hope it's one with millions of people and not one, like, there's only like 700 people in the world you can fuck. Um, but it's not true that like a pheromone that originated in Estonia two million years ago is the only thing that works on him sexually. It's yeah, just taste. I mean, it, it's just taste. He likes the blonde, fair haired guys. From I, would, I think, I think that's, I think that's, that's way more likely. I mean, it's almost, it, it, I, even even if people have pheromones, if, if pheromones are so important for people, it would have been super obvious a long time ago. So if there's an effect of pheromones, part of the reason why it's been so hard to figure it out is it's got to be just a little itty-bitty-bitty thing. But people come in all different okay. groups. But I like how my boyfriend smells, and it can't just be familiarity. Uh. Like. Like I, I make out with my boyfriend. I like, and this is gross. No one ever talks about this. I like how his spit tastes. If I go too long without him getting to taste his spit, I kind of get sad. And like when we're making out and I'm tasting the spit, I'm like, oh, his spit is delicious. Nobody ever says this about their LTRs or other people they're close to, but it's true. His spit is delicious. I may, I've made out with other guys who are, and I felt like it was a chemical reaction. Like you taste terrible. You don't work for me. But but like, and that's not pheromone. But smell and pheromones are actually different. They're, 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 there's different parts of the brain that, that deal with it. There's different parts. And so it could just be smell that's kind of going in there. And, and, it, and it's not to say that these, these sort of other senses don't matter. And, and, and men tend to be more visual in how they get attracted. Women tend to be more... Your spit looks delicious. Yeah, I mean, like, so, so taste, smell, all these things matter. But pheromones mean something very specific. I mean, it's kind of... Pheromones are like the, the sex trick of really, really dumb things. You know, so like if you're a worm, 
and you have to go find a mate and you're you know you have you can count how many neurons you have you know how what your entire brain you can like label every single cell in it you basically have an antenna and it's sort of like it's like looking for those specific pheromones like that one little weird chemical and you just sort of chase after it so lower orders are susceptible to pheromones yeah. worms frat boys <laughs> Exactly. Rats, you know, anything that's sort of related. <laughs> and fags. I throw fags in there, too, if we're going to tick off the lower orders. So, so I mean, it, it, so I don't want to say absolutely positively no. Because so the shit you read about, you know, women who work together, their periods fall into sync. That has no relationship that's, that's to pheromones. And, you know, if you talk to a lot of the, the women's health docs, they think that's just statistical the, crap. I the mean, stinky, it's just... The, the, the idea that the smell in men's armpits helps to regulate women's periods. Remember that came up like 15 years ago in yeah, studies. That's but bullshit, then they, too. but then they dig through it, and, and you can find a smattering of it, but, but you don't get any sort of cohesive sense that this little nucleus in the brain is, like, master regulator of sexual response. Like, it's not going to override and make you only, like... That. Guys from Eastern Europe. Yeah, exactly. And now, I mean, and then you get into the question, you know, like even in a, a, a Eastern European country, you're 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 not. The, there's going to be a lot of variation in what men from that country smell like, or what sort of if there are pheromones, what sort of pheromones do they have? I mean, there's no really true like pure genetic populations. So the Germans lost the war. It's kind of. <laughs> it's kind of. Thank God for that. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, we know that mutts are healthier than purebred dogs. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. So genetic. Mixing, race mixing, uh, miscanonization, however you say that word, um, is actually good and healthy for, for, for human populations and human society. Oh, for sure. I mean, the more mixed you are, the bigger the, bigger the difference genetically between your you parents. and your, your, par- your parents. Yeah, it's, it's fair. The, you, you just tend to do better. I mean, everyone has two copies of the same gene, blah, blah, blah. That's why those Euro-Asian guys are so fucking hot. Exactly. And it's, it's F1. F1's the key, right? It gets the biggest pea plants with the best peas. And, you know, this is Mendel going back okay, to... Okay, so I have a question about that. Because we know that to be true, we know that mutts are healthier, from dog mutts to human mutts, um, is there something in us that compels us to, like, you, you, you meet people who are attracted to really their sort of ethnic, racial, polar opposites. And some people think that that's all formed in sort of a welter of racism, that's an objectification, you know, a white guy only into black girls, or a you know, a, 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 an Asian guy only into white women. You hear that this is like, oh, this is just racism expressing itself. Is there some sort of like genetic compulsion there where there's some people who, for the health of the greater population, seek out the radically different, different racially and genetically? It's. It, I, I think there is. I mean, it, it's kind of. It's, it's a really hard thing to test because it's hard to separate out the genetic from the cultural and the race and all this stuff. There's been a couple of fun studies, and then it's the other thing that you just tend to date the people that you see. So accountants date accountants, not because they love accountants. Well, but, I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the exceptions. I'm talking about the people who who often feel guilty or often told that like, there's something racist. Out. Who are uh, like this guy, only attracted, you know, to a certain racial type and it's not their own i mean it, it's it's it you can easily say it i mean it's adaptive i mean it's definitely there i mean they've done studies in like speed dating and they find that men straight and this is heterosexual straight men will basically fuck anything because we haven't studied enough straight <laughs> yeah exactly it's really not enough the underrepresented but, but, in the scientific literature <laughs> yeah, straight exactly. male community science discovered women about 30 years ago <laughs> we're, we're kind of catching up on this at this point so so but this is interesting so so the the, the race preference actually in the studies that i've seen is much stronger in women than it is in men. So men will fuck anything, and most women will stick to stick to their race. And so, so I would say, you know, 
in general, there's this, there is a little bit of tendency. I think uh, overall, there's this pretty strong com- compulsion to sort of, you know, like a pretty big incest taboo. And that's like the ultimate, you know, inbreeding sort of thing. And going out and seeking other people, certainly, I, I think... But it's good for a population if, you know, in addition to the incest taboo where you don't fuck your nearest relatives, it would be good for the population if there was a certain number of people who were... Oh. Who felt compelled to go as far out of their tribe or region... For sure. For sure. As uh, yeah. possible. No, no. And I bring mean, back into their community... Because the health of any genetic... Any community... I mean, this is sort of like... We're getting now into evolutionary biology. The health of any community is how, how big a variation you have in your genes. And so, I mean, this is why New York City, I think, is full of beautiful people. You have, like, the biggest mixture of all and ever in human history in one little place. And, and then we get things like Blatino porn. Hey, Dan. I am calling in response to this whole thing about the Madonna whore complex. Well, actually, there's a shitload of history behind that that you probably should be aware of. And it really goes into, like, the evolutionary psychology of men and women, the differences between sexual strategies, and how men classify women into one of two types. You're either Madonna, you're a whore. It's about reproductive strategies, maximizing potentials, mate potentials, and basically like evolutionary energetic so the madonna whore complex to my mind seems like the most obvious case of culture impacting sexuality and not some evolutionary something or other uh because it just seems so sort of hysterically anti-female to classify women into one or two groups and, and so is there a biological basis for it is it science and, and you hate this question you don't even want to talk about the moral animals so we'll dispense with this quickly just to prove that we can actually dispense with the question quickly <laughs> i will i will say this one the complex is ridiculous right if you won't fuck your wife it's not adaptive trait because you're never going to have <laughs> babies that can go with it and and the idea that they're bringing up that you know if you it's not that you won't fuck your wife in madonna horror it's that you fuck your wife one way and you fuck your mistress another you fuck your wife in a respectful sort of I love you honey way and then you fuck your mistress the way you would really like to and, fuck and somebody. And the big scientific scientific in quotes here idea is that well if you have, you have a, if your your wife is somewhat squeamish about sex she's less likely to fuck around with someone else and you're not going to end up raising the plumber's kid whereas like the, if you if you marry the whore you know she's going to sleep around and there's going to be a bunch of sperm sloshing inside of her and blah 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 and you end up you end up with you know raising everyone else's kids in the neighborhood and you know you you can make a case it almost it's almost less evolution and more like game theory like you know and and it may be there might be a little bit of a natural tendency there but it it really seems kind of ridiculous okay science science you're just saying it's kind of ridiculous isn't it isn't a disprove you can you're not disproving it for me you're just i don't don't know know how you prove how do you approve or disprove this i mean you could take the same data the same basic findings that you know that baby making is more expensive for women than it is for men that that it's much more dangerous particularly for human women uh you have a big head trying to make through a really really tiny pelvis and lots and lots of death and blah 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 so Yes, it's more costly to have kids, and so women have to be more selective. And men, you know, in theory, can fuck around as much as they want because they have a much lower cost. But raising a kid takes, you know, takes at least ten years before you can put them in the coal mines and put them to work. And so there's a lot of energy input going into both, and it just seems like a neurosis. And you can you can maybe say there's a little natural basis for it, but it doesn't seem something that you should say is like okay. So this looks like mining the data, mining the research to find a justification for a cultural attitude towards exactly. sex. Exactly. 
Right. Not a cultural success produced by the... Exactly. I mean, you, you could say the same sort of way, the same sort of, like, you know, advantageous for your gene sort of argument that if you have a couple of kids, it might be useful to have one of them be the plumber for the same, you know, for the same idea that, like, a little bit of diversity, right, is, is a good idea in the family, like, that, that the plumber's kid might be a little bit better at, you know, sports and end up paying for everyone else's education or God knows what. So, like, so like you can you can take the same information and cut a lot of ways, and you have to be really, really careful about taking scientific data and, like, stretching it to make a case for a social claim. I mean, it kind of goes both ways. It, so this book read to me a lot like some of the books on, on both sides of, like, is it okay to be gay? Is it moral or ethical to be gay? And, and you know... Just, go, just say it. It's not. Well, I mean, it's like, I don't understand. Come on, science. I just want to hear from science that it's not okay to be gay. I'm sick of hearing it from religious people. I want to hear it from fucking science for a change. I mean, I don't think whether whether gay is natural or unnatural, whether, and and, and it is. I mean, every possible organism that you can find fucks, you know, homosexually and heterosexually all over. And you you, you would be, I'd be shocked if you tried to convince me that some, like, this little rodent doesn't doesn't kind of take it up the ass at some point, right? And like, so, not in my house, they don't. There are no rodents taking it up the ass in my house. And no rodents going up the ass. That is the horriest anti-gay sort of stereotype you could possibly invoke on my program. I'm offended. And we've disproved that we could answer a question uh, with any dispatch. It's Let's go on to the next hopeless. one. Hi, Tech Savvy Youth, and hi, Dan. My breasts taste like onions. I don't eat onions. Um... And I've only met one other person who happens to have this particular flavor to her breasts. And I'm wondering um, what that's about and if there's anything that can be done for it. It's a little distracting um, during sex, especially because uh, when I'm having sex with a partner and um, they've gone down on my breasts and then kiss me, I can I can actually taste it. And um, I don't like that. So let me know. If you can uh, shed some light on this, I'd really appreciate that. The nature uh, and origin of the universe, the evolution of the species, science has boldly confronted those issues. Why uh, this woman's breast tastes like onions, I don't think science has confronted No, I, I, have, I have no clue. It, no clue! It, it, sound, it sounds this is This would be one of the places where they say, uh, the god of the gaps. Where there are gaps in the scientific uh, body of knowledge, that may be where God is. So perhaps because, you know, the missing link, there's a little gap there. Maybe God is there making it happen. Maybe God makes this woman's breast taste like onions. (laughs) Yes. I think think Jesus is involved. Or someone somewhere might know. I have no clue. Some supernatural super friend. Yeah, exactly. Maybe what God is trying to tell her is that she's a slut and God is making her breast taste bad to repel her partners and turn her herself off of sex. Yeah, yeah. Because God hates sex. I mean, I've read the data. It's right there in Leviticus. Yeah, it's true. Several times. And shrimp. (laughs) Let's interject here for just a minute. Uh, We're trying to tape this uh, in our little podcast studio, and some motherfucking piece of shit asshole sent by the city is using a leaf blower under our windows. Can you walk us through the science of motherfucking dumbass leaf blowers? Leaf blowers are like the worst thing ever. These little crappy two-stroke engines. He might as well be burning a tire outside as far as like (laughs) what we're breathing, and you just move the fucking leaves from like one place to another, and they... it's uh. What's wrong with rakes? I I really don't know. I, I I think it puts... it just takes a little bit more effort, and you know... 
as far as I'm concerned, you just, you know, let the leaves be. Just, oh, yeah, like, didn't leaves used to decompose once upon a time all on their I own? I mean, it, it doesn't work so good on the on the concrete, but even still, like, you know, I, I think a rake on the sidewalk is perfectly sufficient. And everyone's yammering about global warming, and the fucking polar bears are drowning, and Al Gore gets the Nobel, and we're in Seattle, we're taping this in Seattle, which is supposedly a green city with a green mayor. We can't get off our fucking asses to ban these goddamn two-stroke engine leaf blowers. What the fuck? Hi, Dan. On your last podcast, you were advising a woman about her pothead-smoking boyfriend, and you complained about your own boyfriend not putting away a jar of mayonnaise. And you said that putting away mayonnaise is important, that there are issues of botulism, I think you named. Actually, Dan, mayonnaise does not need to be refrigerated. I don't refrigerate my mayonnaise, and it remains quite sterile. I recommend that you stop refrigerating it. Save some space in your fridge. Uh, so, um... Science. We've really we've come down from pheromones and evolution. Uh, n- now we're just talking about onion roll tits, and now leaving mayonnaise out on the counter. Scientifically, is that a risky thing to do? Uh, yeah. Um, I well, mean, what does the data show? I mean, it, 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 what is mayo? Right? It's oil and egg mixed together and then left out. And uh, yeah, like a sealed jar of mayonnaise. It's been like properly canned or whatever that you can probably leave out for a while but the second that thing opens you're 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 done i mean it's eggs because when you open it all the little angels that were dancing on the head of a pin in the other side of the room fly over and crawl into the mayonnaise and start shitting yeah exactly isn't that what happens evil evil enters the uh the mayonnaise so if you're talking about like you know like some fake ass you know stuff that comes out of like a squirt tube or whatever like you know like hellman's best or a miracle web right i'm sure that stuff won't decay you know for thousands of years you you can can cock the tub with that (laughs) exactly but but uh uh real mayonnaise uh i would i would not leave that out it's egg i mean it's like egg and milk are the same both of those are really really bad because just like they can make the little little angel the little angels love to shit in the eggs and the milk yeah because it has everything that that a little like a little pestilence needs to make make a wonderful life so like so eggs eggs and milk are are both not good to be left out they they incubate uh vaccines in eggs, yeah, yeah, because eggs are this wonderful medium for yeah, yeah. growing angels. But, but eggs are, are sterile, and you can you can inject right in it. That's all the flu vaccine. But, but like once something gets into the egg, it can just take off yeah, and reproduce it's, like it's, crazy. It's doomed. Yeah. So so like it's it's really yeah unrecommended. So like for do not open up mayonnaise and leave it on the counter and eat it days later. You, you are, science says so. Science says so. Hey Dan, um, I'm a 26 year old uh, straight woman. Uh, I'm in college and I'm pre med. I just listened to one where there uh, was a question about um, basically what they call a super infection um, of HIV, and uh, yes, it can happen. Um, the the thing with HIV and why it's been so hard to develop any kind of vaccinations or anything for it um, is because of the high rate that it uh, mutates and uh, and basically in one person that has HIV they can have hundreds if not thousands of different DNA strands of HIV um, that. Uh, basically the one virus that infects you uh, subsequently becomes, and that's why with the antro, uh, antiretroviral therapy, um, you have to take it your whole life because you could uh, have more of your strains mutate if you don't take it, and then it becomes resistant, and that's why um, uh, why adherence is such a big deal with the, the uh the antiretroviral virals. Anyways, um, basically, uh, so if you have two people with so many different viruses and you are 
having unprotected sex, you can be infected by a different strain, a different um, DNA base, basically, of the uh, HIV, and it could actually progress and make things worse for you. So you're actually science, and she's just pre-med. Is she right? She's almost entirely right. I mean, HIV is RNA, and it's more than a couple thousand versions of it. But, yeah, almost everything that she said is, is right. So the difficulty in developing a vaccine for HIV stems from how rapidly it mutates, how many different mutations one person has in their body at one time? Yeah, exactly. So, like, you get, you get a, like, a little input of HIV when you get originally infected, and then it, like, almost immediately starts to mutate. And, and almost every single HIV particle that gets produced in your body is a little bit different from every other one. And so it's it's right on the limit. If it's it like mutated, snowflakes, exactly. So if it was one more, a little, even a little bit more of a mutation rate, like even was a little bit more, it would never work. It'd be so have so many mutations that the virus wouldn't wouldn't be able to spread itself and blah, blah, blah. So that's one of the theories, actually, how HIV meds work, is it actually makes the virus mutate just a little bit too much that they just fall off the edge. Um, and the reason why the meds don't cure you, they only kind of can hold it back, is that actually then the virus hangs out and your own, your own cells actually keep a little reserve copy sort of hanging around and blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah, you, the drugs work. You got to take them because if you let you let a couple of mutations get held, it 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 you're, it'll just it, they will no longer work anymore. A couple and, other things that always come up about HIV is reinfection. That somebody who is HIV positive, a lot of people who are HIV positive feel like they don't have to worry about becoming infected again, and so it creates this perverse incentive, particularly for a lot of gay guys, to get infected because then they don't have to worry about condoms anymore. They don't have to. They can stop worrying about infection at all mm-hmm. and just do whatever they want to sexually keep their legs in the air twenty four hours a day. Is that true? Is reinfection something you don't have to worry about? Well, I mean, reinfection definitely happens. So that's what makes HIV, again, somewhat unusual. So, like, you get chicken pox once, and then you don't ever get chicken pox again. HIV, that's not the case. You get, you get exposed to a different kind of HIV, another little input, totally get infected, go through the whole infection again. And then you have two different kinds of HIV that can go and mix and match with one another. The jets and the sharks, HIV. Exactly. So just like we, you know, like, just like we talked about earlier, like, you're, you get genes from both your, both your parents. All, every HIV virus actually has two complete copies of its genome. So actually, you can really mix and match. And so it's a way to actually make... But is, is getting reinfected going to make you any sicker? Is it going to make you any worse? That's, that's an interesting question. So you can get reinfected, but there's no real data showing that it makes you worse off. Um, it, in, it, there's a lot of theoretical concern, but no one's actually been able to show it makes you worse off. And, and in fact, serosorting, you know, positive, positive people sleeping with positive people, negative people sleeping with negative people... Which yeah. I'm all for. And, 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 and the studies that have come out say actually that it does reduce transmission rates. And, that, and that's, that's great. It, the positive-to-positive mixtures, though, if you're doing with an out protection, there's a chance – it hasn't been proven one way or the other. But, but it's, it's an open theory. question that being it's reinfected question. again and again could make you sicker. Yeah, and, and one of the key things to point out here is, though, and I think one where I would be more concerned, is, is HIV-1 versus HIV-2. You know, they both sound like the same, but they're actually very, very somewhat different viruses. In fact, HIV-1 is much more close to the SIV from chimpanzees than it is to HIV-2. And HIV-2 is close to the macaque virus and blah, blah, blah. So, so getting a double infection with HIV and HIV-1 and HIV-2, could, that I think you have a reasonable chance of it being a very bad Now, story. a lot of the people who are risking reinfection, who are HIV positive already and uh, feel that they don't need to worry about infection at all anymore, um, are on the antiretrovirals. 
So are they less susceptible to a secondary infection? Because, you know, when a doctor is exposed to HIV in the lab with a needle prick or splash with blood, they put them on the antiretrovirals for a weekend, a course of them, and it seems to block infection from taking hold at all, they think. That's why doctors do it to themselves, mm-hmm. but they don't do it to everybody else. It's kind of an asshole thing for the doctors to do, but whatever. So the fact that a lot of these guys who are positive are already on antiretrovirals, does that provide some level of protection for reinfection? It, it might. Again, I don't know if I don't know how much data there is floating around. I mean, the only case beyond needle sticks and sort of health professional situation is if you have a child that's being born to an HIV-positive mother, you can put the child on antiretrovirals, and that seems to protect the child seems somewhat. to prevent infection at all. So this, this sort of transmission from mother to child. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's the only other case. So, I, I mean, based on those two things, I'd say there's a reason chance you're a little bit better off but you know if your partner is already resistant to the drug you're taking you you can put yourself in a really bad place by that because then you suddenly introduce a few hiv genes that now teach the rest of the hiv in you how to how to be resistant to the drug one other thing about hiv uh that we should talk about is the recent crack up of the hiv vaccine trials which happened here in seattle and uh in where in wherever in Africa they were also doing yeah, trials. Yeah, so this is a worldwide vaccine trial network. It's actually based in Seattle and all over. And and the vaccine has been tested, and a vaccine was being tested and developed. And what we've learned about this potential vaccine is it makes you more susceptible to HIV f- infection than not getting the vaccine. Exactly. Which seems to me, I mean, I'm not a scientist. Seems like not what you want a vaccine yeah, to do. It, it's kind of a fiasco. I mean, it, it was they stopped the trial initially because they, they didn't see any improvement. There was no benefit. And then they actually went on to look into the data a little bit more carefully, and, and people actually were at a slightly higher risk. So just to be clear, it's not that people were getting HIV from the vaccine. It's just that you the vaccine... May, and they're not quite sure why. Maybe your immune system takes a little bit easier on, on actually HIV. But so everyone who started in this trial got the vaccine was HIV negative, and then they go see what rates people got positive on. And the people who got the vaccine are getting infected at slightly higher rates. And everyone's getting exposed in theory at the same rate, but yeah, get get get, get an infection. And That's so, slightly higher, like twice the rate. Yeah, I, I haven't. I some of this data is just it's just starting to trickle out, and so this is a huge disappointment. I mean, like this this was the whole class of vaccines with the idea that you put a bit of HIV inside cold virus and then the immune system freaks out because it's used cold virus and we'll do it and it didn't work and so and so we're not we're, we're to go here is kind of tough i mean a lot of the next vaccines are all sort of based around this idea and so and you're not going to get a lot of volunteers this time out uh to it, test the vaccines it's sort of the i was calling it with a friend the other day the gay tuskegee experiment um the tuskegee experiments on african-americans in the south who had syphilis who were untreated uh, and observed as they died of syphilis um this is of course this There's is no comparison, no but I'm going to compare it anyway. Um, it sort of made African Americans wary of the medical community and science for generations, and I think this is really going to do damage the, to the any of any of any efforts to create a vaccine in the United States using gay and gay men as test subjects. And, and so because we're, we're looking at this now, going. Who Double did they the give this vaccine to in America? Gay people? Gay, gay men. So, Only? So world- and in, in Africa, they tested it on everybody. Well, in Asia, yeah. Not, well, not, I mean, female sex workers and, 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 and gay men. So, but... 
I mean, you're kind of right. I mean, it makes it a hard sell. I mean, but this is sort of the thing. I think hey, last time we gave you the vaccine, we totally fucked you. Sorry about that. Come and try our next vaccine. And, and I don't think, but I think the key thing is, I don't think there was intention. I mean, this is why we have a well, trial. I don't think it was intentional either, but it's the end result. And, and everyone in the trial did actually end up getting, you know, HIV avoidance. Tra- in some, some sense, it's actually the infection rate in both, may, you know, the, the education is still one of the best ways to avoid it. I know, that actually makes it creepier because everybody in the trial got all this prevention education and that even then they were getting infected at, tw- at, at, at twice the rate as compared to the other people in the study you, you, you're right i mean like and when it comes down to it, it's going to be a very so absent sell. the prevention education how much or, uh, blah, 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 how blah, much higher would it be yeah yeah, yeah. it's 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 in, in those people in theory because they've had the vaccine they'll be at lifetime higher risk the people who have not already gotten hiv and so it's. I mean, this is the nature. When you volunteer to do any trial, I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go on experimental therapy because it's going to be better, and it's experimental. Well, I, I just remember all the ads for the HIV vaccine trials, a lot of which ran in our newspaper here in Seattle. They're like, hey, it's fun. Come save the world. Yeah. And, and it's, I hope these people were acquainted with the downsides of helping to save the world and, and is, you you and that's that's and, and those consent forums are kind of thick and i i have i mean you almost have to talk to the people who went through those trials and then you have in the alternate i mean the other big vaccine trials that have all been sort of offshoots of hiv research that have been done in seattle and the united states and blah 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 so like the uh, the human papillomavirus vaccine that is out and everyone everyone who is who can get it should get it it works great um that trial was done in in, in populations here the uh, herpes virus vaccine which is coming out that they think the results are out in 2008 for the big trial at least that's when seattle and around the country blah blah that one again so you you take you go on these trials and you take a risk you know i've, I've had ex-girlfriends who did both of these both mm-hmm. of those trials and they worked and nature of the vaccine i mean it's experimental vaccine and it and the kind of this is where it kind of happens and and i guess that's a good point i mean you should do it it's an altruistic act to go into a vaccine trial and take an experimental vaccine and there's no guarantee that you are going to be protected and as we found out here like you could be kind of screwed hello i have a comment not a question uh, my comment is on the pussy versus scrotum insult line and uh, I know previous callers have said that the pussy should be revered because it's such a strong organ that can spit out babies at will. But the reality is, at least in this country, about half the time the pussy fails in that job and the pregnant mother has to go on to have a C-section. Now, whether that's a commentary on the state of American medicine or a state of the strength of the pussy, I think it is valid to point out that the pussy does fail a fair amount of time at this great act of strength. The scrotum, however, is an incredibly smart organ that is required to nurture the testicle. So those are my comments on the pussy versus scrotum. Okay, science. Is the scrotum an organ, technically? I, I, I would say so. I mean, it does a couple useful things, and, and you could get into whether or not it's... But it's an skin. organ? That little sack of skin yeah, is an organ? I, I mean, thought the I mean, nuts were an organ, or your dick was an organ. I thought I the mean, scrotum was just like the bag you're... Nuts yeah, but but in. any but there's more than one tissue. There's muscle and skin and a bunch of other things, and more than one tissue working together is an organ. If you if you want to go get, by the get all science on my ass, get all sciencey and technical on you here. <laughs> um, I mean, it does some useful. I mean, it's really important to keep the testicles at the right temperature. I mean, that's kind of why the balls sort of drop. Well, I know and, I seem to be at the boiling point. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know about yours. <laughs> I, I haven't really thought about them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but where does science come down on the pussy versus scrotum thing? And what this well, is all I, about is like which should be the pejorative of meaning weak and vulnerable like if you call somebody a pussy when a pussy can like totally take a you know take a 12 inch dick get the shit pounded out of 
it or into it. Um, spit out a human being or spit out quintuplets. Like, that's what a pussy does. A, a, a nutsack, it just kind of, like, cradles your nuts and offers... No protection whatsoever. You can like slap somebody in the nuts and they will be on the floor for 45 minutes howling. Whereas, I mean, if you fucked away at somebody's nuts the way some women like to have their vaginas, pussies fucked away at, the guy would die. Yeah. It would be an enhanced interrogation technique. I think, I think anyone who, who has a scrotum regrets having external genitalia at some point. <laughs> right? You know, like, there's, there's, there's some moment in your life that you really, really regret like, it. I and wish so, this was where the ovaries are. Well, tucked up vulnerable. safe inside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, internal, internal, having it inside kind of makes a little bit of sense. But, you know, I think the caller is also being a little harsh, a little bit harsh on the pussy. I think, I think if we're going to really blame anything for the C-section it's the pelvis. The goddamn pelvis. They're How trying, so? You have to try to shove a big ass head through a little opening in the pelvis on its way out the body and that that's always where it gets stopped i mean so like before c-sections became common so the c-section pulls the baby out above the pelvis opening exactly and so because like, every so often you have a kid with a little bit too, too big of a head for the woman's pelvis and it hits there and it just stops and the the uterus keeps contracting and 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 then the woman and the baby die and so this is like why one of the reasons why childbirth was so 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 deadly before you like had c-sections available and so there's kind of a nice consequence of this like so all these c sections mean you have more bigger head kids coming out and surviving with bigger brains yeah so this is good for starting with julius caesar yeah all, all the way on through here so this is kind of good maybe for for some you know big if you approve of big brains it's sort of a good thing here. so we shouldn't use pussy as a pejorative but perhaps we should use pelvis yeah or what incompetent and poorly designed yeah horribly designed the fema trailers in new orleans total pelvises total pelvises all that formaldehyde and, all those kids and, dying and, and they cause your knees to bend the wrong way and so both for all those reasons i think the pelvis is really what deserves to be yelled and screamed at and 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 abused all right we're gonna have to uh leave it there uh if we didn't get to your question i'm sorry it's because your question was a total pelvis we're just not interested in your question 206-201-2720 is the phone number if you'd like to record a question for a future podcast uh just kidding we'll probably get to your question next week if you've already recorded it so please keep coming back and downloading more the stranger.com slash savage is where you download the savage Lovecast every week we want to thank jonathan golub science for joining us today it was great. It was really fun having you. Um, and we'll have uh, Jonathan back to answer your scientific sex question again in the future. Sounds great. If you'll consent to this. Yeah. If it doesn't cost you your PhD. <laughs> yes, we'll find out. <laughs> Thanks a lot. We'll be back at you next week with another podcast. Jonathan Golub's podcast, Dear Science, can be found at www.thestranger.com slash podcasts.